Happy Chinese New Year to you all. Just a quick sort of tie-in to that before we get started. Um, two quick tie-ins, actually. One is that next week, our very own H and K will be uh, speaking next Sunday morning and sharing about uh, their heading as long-term workers to Western Asia. And you won't want to miss that because if you do miss it, you won't be able to catch it online because of the highly sensitive nature of their work. So heads up on that one. Secondly, if you've been around Jericho for the last couple of years, uh, you may remember on uh, Lunar New Year us having a catered lunch together. And as we were working to plan this for this year and working with the food service company, food costs here have increased significantly for us. And so we just weren't able to put it together at a price point that was workable for this year. Uh, so we've just put that on hold until we can figure something else out. But not to worry. We will still feed you because it's Jericho Ridge. Just pretend you're a newcomer and come to the newcomer's lunch on March the 3rd. So we'll let you define that however you want to define it. And uh, make sure you sign up with Tammy at the Welcome Center. And then the, we have this uh, newcomer's lunch twice annually. And so if you haven't been before and you want to get a little bit more information about who Jericho Ridge is and how we operate, we'd love to host you. We do that down in the rec center where we can provide our own food. So, so those are the two pieces. Uh, let's dive in this morning. And today we're going to be wrapping up the first teaching series of 2013, which is entitled Upside Down, Living the Transformed Life. So we've been going through Romans chapter 12 together, verse by verse, and we've been looking at all of the different elements of radical Christian living. And we've talked about the fact that Romans 12 is a pretty good litmus test because in our culture, it has become common for someone to identify themselves by the label Christian and us to have a lot of ambiguity as to what we mean by that. And so in Romans 12, it's like the Bible is holding up this kind of litmus test and saying, these things, the actions, are going to demonstrate your commitment to following God in the way of Jesus if you make that radical commitment. Because if you watch the news or if you listen to the radio, we're reminded almost every day that our world is filled with radical people both in the positive sense and in the negative sense. People who, for better or worse, are sold out to their particular ideology. Maybe it's capitalism, or their religious system, or their political perspective, or they're radically committed to fighting a particular cause, like cancer, or cancer research, or they're committed radically to their nation, and they're willing to do radical things. We call them radicals because they're willing to do things that the rest of us are not willing to do. So on the positive side, uh, I think here at Jericho Ridge of an example, some of you know Mike Teeter. Uh, Mike, you might remember a few years ago that he and his brothers decided to raise money and awareness for ALS. Their father died of ALS. So they did something pretty darn radical. They biked all the way across Canada from the West Coast to the East Coast. I can bike for a couple of blocks and keep up with Mike, but he and his three brothers, two brothers, all the way West to East and raised a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, it was pretty radical. 
And on the negative side in our world, we can also probably all think of examples of people who are radically committed to something destructive and who live and orient their lives around the radical nature of that. They can be guilty of horrific acts of evil. Radical people do things like blow up buildings, acts of war and genocide, sometimes against their own people. Just this last week, we got an email from Tanzania about uh, eight men who stormed and, uh, into the house and the compound of a young boy with albinism, and he's seven years old, and the men shot his father in the leg and in the arm, wounded his grandmother, and then the, gra- the uh, seven-year-old boy, his grandfather, came to his rescue and stood in front of these eight men and said, if you're going to get to my grandson, you're going to have to go through me, and they killed him brutalized his body, and then killed the seven-year-old as well. Radically committed to acts of evil. And radical people, because of the intense and radical nature and drastic nature of their actions, challenge our presuppositions and our assumptions about what's up and down. They shake us out of complacency and apathy and cause us to pay attention to things and to pray and to act in different ways. And so in Romans chapter 12, the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early Christian movement, he's been building a case in this text for a type of person whose heart has been radically transformed by love. And this kind of person and this kind of love is characterized not just by pretending to love other people. He says in verse 9, where he's starting this section, they really actually do it. And the person whose life is given over to this kind of love does radical things, like in verse 12, in the midst of suffering, they persevere and they pray. The person that's filled with this radical kind of love does an even more radical thing when people persecute them and say things about them. In verse 14, it says they return blessing for cursing. They bless their enemies and pray for them because the person filled with this kind of radical love does not seek to pay back evil with more evil. But in verses 19, 20, and 21 of Romans 12, we find the most upside down and maybe one of the most challenging sections in all of the New Testament. I'm going to read it for you from the New Living Translation. Starting in verse 19, it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge, this is God speaking, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry... Feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads, or you will heap hot coals on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Last week, Pastor Keith taught on verses 17 and 18, doing all you can to live at peace with other people. But a reasonable question to ask is how far can principle of peaceable living be extended? 
Pastor Keith asked us last week to consider you know, that there would be instances where uh, it says in the text, as much as it's up to you, there might be instances where it's, it's we've tried and tried and tried and it may not be up to us. So how far do you push this idea of peaceable living? In verse 19, it pushes it even further. And the section of Romans 12 that I just read is sandwiched between instructions on interpersonal relationships, so how we engage with each other, and then a text which begins right away in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, talking about the role of government. And some of you may have gone home last weekend asking questions like, yeah, yeah, it's fine and good to live as peace as much as possible with people. But how do I do that when I'm faced with the presence of radical evil? What does a transformed person do in those situations? How does a transformed person approach the question of retribution or paying someone back for evil? What does the Bible teach us about our response to those that have wronged us? And I think it's important to say a few things as we look into these verses, uh, a few footnotes on our discussion today. First footnote is that this is not intended in Romans 12, 19 to 21, to be a fully orbed discussion on the problem of evil in the world and the existence of evil. If you're looking for that, you should probably head to the Apologetics Canada Conference at Northview on March 1 and March 2, and you'll have a good discussion there. But this passage is about how individuals respond to evil when it's done to us. It's not about how governments or nations or groups of people respond. Just a few verses later in Romans 13, Paul's going to argue that the state has a unique role and God-ordained role to play in restraining violence and subduing evil, which we would probably be fairly philosophically comfortable with. The police don't go around giving out flowers to people who misbehave, Paul says. And we're going to look at that notion in a moment. But first, I think it helps us, before we look at this text, to get a sense of what does the New Testament teach us as a whole about this same issue? The question of when I come up against the topic in the Scriptures of loving my enemies, people that have really wronged me. And one of the questions to ask when you come up against something in the Scriptures is, did Jesus say anything about it? And Jesus did say very clear things about loving our enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus is teaching about revenge. And he says, you've heard it said that the law says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this phrase, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, comes to us from the Old Testament from Leviticus and it's known as the lex talionis and formed the basis of the legal code for centuries in the ancient world. And we sometimes think about, well, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as a, a biblical sanction on if somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. You know, if they came after me, like the punishment must match the crime. Uh, if he hit me, I'll hit him back. But there's a problem built into that system. And to illustrate the problem, I think about uh, a friend 
of ours who told a story that happened in her home a number of years ago, and she faced a bit of a parenting dilemma around it, so you might identify with this. But she came upon a scene with her two kids, and her older son, they were both quite young, was just beating his younger sister, like just punishing her. And she didn't know what had happened or anything, so she yanks her son out of the situation, and she drags him over into the other room, and she says, you know what, this is just unacceptable, and this, and he's completely defiant. So she says, well, fine, you know, I just... He's at the age where this would be appropriate. I need to give him a spanking. So as she's spanking him, she says, Young man, we do not hit each other in this house. (laughs) And then she stops and thinks about it for a minute. And says, I I wonder if maybe my eye for an eye approach here may have inadvertently communicated something that I didn't want to communicate to him. See, in Leviticus 24, the notion of an eye for an eye is not about private retribution. If they did that to me, I'm going to go after them and get them back. The notion is actually that God wanted to set up a a sense and desire for justice that the punishment did indeed fit the crime. Because in the ancient world, if justice was left uh, to the own person's discretion and something happened to you, and you had a full right and responsibility to go after that person, you know, let's say they accidentally killed one of your sheep. We'd go after and say, well, one sheep, that's not even good enough to pay. That was my best sheep. I'm going to take two, three, maybe four of your sheep. And so God was setting in place and orchestrating a kind of a cap system on retribution. And it was never private retribution. In Leviticus, where that text comes up, it's specifically oriented around how those who are magistrates or leaders in the community will process what is an appropriate punishment to fit the crime. And so, in this teaching in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, But I say, verse 39, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, that was a legal obligation in the ancient world, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask and do not turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's a pretty easy law to live by. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. This kind of radical love for enemies, for those who insult, who persecute you, is all through the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read just verse 9, which says, Don't repay evil for evil. Do not retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and God will bless you for it. Or in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 22, 20, rather, verse 22, says this, Don't say, I will get even for this wrong. Wait for the Lord to handle the matter. Pastor Keith reminded us last week that the desire for revenge is embedded 
so deeply in the human condition and human nature that it's incredibly potent and has the capacity to be corrupted very easily, sometimes without our even being aware of it. So the question then that should come to our minds is, well, if a person who desires to live the transformed life doesn't repay evil for evil, how do they handle things? What do they do? Just this week I saw a posting on Facebook that I think was trying to take a stab at answering this question, and it said this, there's no need for revenge, just sit back and wait. Those who hurt you will eventually screw up themselves, and if you're lucky, God will let you watch. It's not a quote from Scripture, just so we're clear. (laughs) But in our text here today in Romans 12, this kind of passive-aggressive approach is off the table because that's not actually motivated by genuine love for others and a desire to bless them. It's motivated by a desire to sit back and watch and wait for them to trip and fall and then to be around and gloat when it happens. So let's drill into our text a little bit here in Romans 12 and see what we discover. So verse 19, never take revenge, leave that to the righteous anger of God. The scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. So the first thing that we see here is that there is a danger, there's a dark side to retributive violence. Retributive violence is where I'm going to pay somebody back for something that they did that it's my right or responsibility or I have the capacity to tip the scales back to equilibrium. But notice something here. We're not to take revenge when we're personally wronged because someone has already been given that job. The Scriptures are clear that paying back someone for evil that they have done is the prerogative of God and prerogative of the authorities that have been ordained by God. Those are the only two categories of individuals who get to do that. And the danger of retributive violence is that I'm taking on a job that is not available to me. And if I do take on a job that's not available to me, then I'm doing it, I'm doing someone else's job. It's kind of like the laws we have set up here in Canada to, you know, say if you're going to hire somebody and it's going to be somebody from outside the country, you have to prove that it can't, the job that you're hiring for cannot be done reasonably by a Canadian. Otherwise, you know, someone else, we don't want someone to come and take jobs away from Canadians. The Scripture is saying you can actually take a job away from God or from the authorities whom he has given the authority to to do that. I like the way that the ASV translation of verse 17 reads, because it's a little clearer on this issue. It says, give place to or leave room for, leave the door open for the wrath of God. And see, if you're wired up like me, this is a significant challenge for you. Because, you know, I get that email from Tanzania about that young boy, and I see the footage on the news in Tanzania, and I don't want to leave room for anybody else to do the job that needs to be done. I want to get on a plane, I want to go over there, I want to find these eight guys, 
and I want to look them in the eye, and I want justice done. Observing deep pain in the unrestrained nature, seemingly unrestrained nature of evil in our world is very difficult for us to leave room for God's wrath to be poured out on evildoers. Because we look around and we see young girls bartered and sold as human cargo into the sex trade around the world, some here in our own city. We see powerful people in Guatemala who use force and violence to displace people who have no voice from their land, who have lived there for generations and they have nowhere to go and nothing to call their own. We see in school classrooms bullies in hallways who seemingly single other kids out for no reason. We see in more tame terms people in our own workplace environments steal your good ideas and pass it off as their own and you think, what am I supposed to do now? Whenever we come up against something that is wrong, if we're wired up with a sense of justice, which I think is something of the imprint of God's nature and character in our hearts as humanity, this feeling that justice has been perverted wells up in our hearts. And the feeling of wanting justice isn't wrong. But personal actions that come from a place of revenge for wrongs done to others, wrongs done to me, is off the table. In the Old Testament book of Nahum, the prophet is really, really angry with some of the enemies of God's people because they seem to be getting away with literally with murder. And God reminds him not so gently of this truth in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. Retributive violence is not my job. It's not your job. The position of judge and jury of the universe has already been filled. But this does not mean that we sit idly by, passively waiting for God to sometime dispense cosmic justice. The very next verse gives us an active strategy to deploy when dealing with those whom we label as our enemies. And the strategy in verse 20 is an offense of peace. Now, we're part of a tradition uh, as the Mennonite Brethren that's historically known as the Peace Church. And this often gets confused with or equated on a one-to-one ratio with pacifism. And we don't have time this morning to go into all of the details of that, but I would suggest to you that just like there's a difference between force and violence, there's also a very real difference between pacifism and peacemaking. In Matthew 5, verse 9 Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, or blessed are those who literally work hard at peace, or work hard for peace. See, we're called not just to sit back and think, well, that's a terrible wrong in the world. I hope somebody does something about that. We're called to work for peace and to pursue it. 
not just to sit idly by and hope that someone else does the job for us. Listen to our confession of faith and the active and indeed offensive stance that we're called to adopt. This is a short excerpt from the uh, Article 13 on Love and Non-Resistance. We view violence in its many forms and different forms as contradictory to the new nature of the Christian. We believe that the evil and inhumane nature of violence is contrary to the gospel of love and peace. But we don't just sit around and do nothing. Alleviating suffering, reducing strife, and promoting justice are ways of demonstrating Christ's love. Here's where Romans 12 comes into play when we encounter evil or oppression or injustice. There are those who, in the tradition of the peace church, have been very, very passive historically. And when injustice has occurred, they've sat around and held prayer meetings, not a bad thing to do, but said, gee, I hope God does something about that. But I think our tradition has grown in its realization that peace requires work and hard work. So we don't just sit around and say, I hope somebody gets around to that, or I hope, boy, I mean, maybe there's a government agency that would take up that cause for us. We say, no, we will, we will actively engage the world in promoting justice and demonstrating Christ's love through the alleviation of suffering. It's why the team's going to Guatemala to distribute wheelchairs and to see people raised up out of poverty and equipped with the skills that they have to be able to see a new life come into their world and their possibilities. It's why we work in different places all over the world to see that God's kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get up and we actively seek ways to find and make peace. We don't get freaked out in our own settings here when someone, you're walking downtown and someone who is homeless approaches you. You don't rush across to the other side of the street and think, boy, I hope that the Gateway of Hope got enough in their kettle campaign because I really hope that that person gets what they need. No. You see if they're hungry and you could see if they might be willing if you'd buy them a meal. We don't just sit back and say, gee, I hope that whole drought thing in East Africa really calms down. That sounds really tough over there. No, we fund the drilling of wells through Global Aid Network as churches here in Langley together, micro-loan agencies. I think the problem is in some circles, uh, pacifism has become equated with passivity or doing nothing, and it's a poor excuse. But our call here in Romans 12 is very, very active. Feed the hungry If a person is thirsty, give them something to drink. They might be your enemy, but take the risk that ultimately God is in charge and he will sort that out. Which brings us to the burning question, pun fully intended, and the title, what's up with the coals of fire weirdness in this text? Like, what in the world is going on with that Uh, in verse 20? Because in our Western mind... It doesn't sound like radical love. It actually sounds a little bit like revenge, doesn't it? You're my enemy? Oh, yeah, I'll just take something from the fire and pour it over your head. That'll teach you. Kind of sounds a little bit more like revenge. But uh, looking at this, it's actually a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 25. And Proverbs 25 kind of has two layers of 
meaning to it. The first kind of layer is that this is a figure of speech, obviously, from ancient culture that actually doesn't indicate hostility to a person. It indicates radical generosity to a person. When I was in Africa this last May, uh, I, one thing that you notice is people carry everything on their heads. And I mean everything on their heads. It is literally amazing to see how much weight people can balance on their heads with careful practice. And so one of the probable meanings that comes from this ancient practice is if you think about, um, even in places in Africa we visited out in the, in the villages, that uh, in, your, in your hut or in your home, you have like a little hearth or a little kind of container that keeps the fire going. And you keep stoking the coals, you know, some kind of a container where you keep all of those coals so you can keep igniting it whenever you need it. And the plan is you always want to keep it going. But every now and again, the coals go out. You sleep through the night and you forget and it dies down too far. And so it's the responsibility of someone in the family to go to the neighbor's house with your little pot and borrow fire from them and kind of restoke the coals, get things going on. Now, if you and your neighbor are not on good terms, this would be the opportunity for your neighbor to really screw you over. Like, if you have no way of cooking and keeping warm, you don't get your source of fire back, like, you're done for. And so one way of thinking about this image is the choice that could be made in that interaction when your neighbor comes to you for coals. The neighbor who has wronged you the neighbor who has redrawn the property lines radically in their favor and nobody's doing anything about it. And you have a choice to make. When they come to you for coals, it's within your right to withhold it. Or you can demonstrate radical generosity and heap those coals up high and they'll carry it back to their little hut with it on their head and they can go on and restart in that portion of their life. You see, when you and I demonstrate radically loving behavior in the face of stinginess, in the face of being wronged, you're not only exhibiting and living out the character of Jesus, but it actually highlights the offense that they made a little bit more because you're actually willing to do the exact opposite of what was done to you. Let's bring it in the modern world, a very simple example for a moment. Let's say you're a teacher, and the teacher in the next classroom from you is forever, and I mean like daily, stealing your chalk, and there really isn't enough to go around. And so instead of holding a grudge, you go to Staples, and you buy them, not the little box, but you buy them the massive box of chalk, and just leave it on their desk. That's heaping coals of fire on their head. When someone wrongs you, you don't get even. You go on the offensive to make peace at personal expense. You don't even charge that to the school district's account. You just buy the big box of chalk, leave it on their desk, and it's out of your pocket. Because sometimes the cost of peace is greater than the cost of vengeance. And this cost is only worth it in little and in big ways because of what we talked about before, because ultimately, justice will prevail. 
Ultimately, God does not let the guilty go unpunished. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, and in Isaiah, and in Ezekiel, a second image for burning coals is used, and it's always used as a reminder of God's judgment on evil and those who do wrong. Ultimately, living the upside-down life and repaying evil with blessing and good only makes sense if there is someone ultimately more powerful and more capable of making peace than you or I will ever be. The one who's ultimately the arbitrator of all humanity and will punish those who do evil. And so the phrase of coals of fire is a reminder both of our responsibility but also the responsibility that God shares. And we'll close our teaching time with this and move into a time of response as we celebrate communion together. Because I think in in verse 21 we're reminded of the fact that don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good, is that ultimately, in every single instance, overcoming evil with good is always, always, always a costly endeavor. Peace is always costly. Author John Piper, in writing on this passage, notes that because of the cross and resurrection, woven into the very fabric of reality is God's absolute commitment that justice will be done. Because God's nature is perfect and just and loving, everything that is an affront to that will ultimately and must ultimately be dealt with. The wrongs in this world, as well as the wrongs that you and I have perpetuated in our lives, they must be punished in order for justice to win the day. But in God's universe, forgiveness does not mean that some crimes receive no punishment. It just means that some crimes are punished in the suffering of a substitute. Isaiah 53, 6 says this about Jesus and about his death on the cross. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity or the sins of us all. See, peace with God ultimately cost him the ultimate price. Listen again to the verse that was read earlier by Ruth Ellen and Danny. Therefore, since you and I have been made right with in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us, what he suffered for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. We've received mercy instead of justice. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. The hard truth is that peace is always costly and that justice will ultimately prevail, but that mercy is mixed in to the opportunity. And so don't miss that opportunity, friends. If you're nursing a grudge against someone who's wronged you, the scriptures invite you to forgive. But they invite you to do it not just sort of out of willpower and just mustering it up from that deep place in your soul, 
The scriptures say, you know what, you can only live the transformed life if you're filled with the spirit of Jesus who gives you the capacity to overcome evil with good. I'm gonna invite Jared and Ruth Elm to come and they're gonna lead us in a special music. Uh, the song is called, O God of Love, True Course of Peace. And our prayer team is gonna be available for you. So for today, that's Curtis and Bailey and Laura. They'll be available outside uh, on the communion table sections there. And when it talks about in the New Testament, a celebration and a remembering of what it is that Christ did for us on the cross. We're called to consider the cost that Jesus paid so that you and I could experience mercy instead of justice. And we're also reminded of the fact that if we're harboring something in our hearts against someone who has wronged us, that we need to attend to that before we participate in communion. Or if as you get yourself ready and your heart ready, God brings back to your mind something that you have done that may have caused offense in another person to another person to go to them and make that right before you go to the communion table. Our practice here at Jericho is to have an open communion table. So Pastor Keith will be serving over here and the Lafleurs will be serving over on my right, your left. And so whenever you feel that you're uh, ready, we would just invite you to stand, make your way over to the table. If you want to pray with the prayer team, you'd be welcome to do that. Uh, the prayer team's there to serve you. It doesn't have to be some deep, dark thing going on in your life. It can just be something that you're wrestling through or want someone to pray with you about. We would welcome that, and they would love and are trained to participate with you in that way. At the communion table, when you're there, the bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you and for me. And the cup represents his blood and the cost poured out at his own life that was shed. And so I'm going to invite you just to remain seated in a time of reflection as Jared and Ruth Allen lead us through this song and just asking God what he might want to stir up in our hearts in terms of a commitment to peace. And then during the second song and following, we'll invite you to move to the communion tables as you're ready. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that you were willing to pay the ultimate cost for peace. That we could experience and know peace with you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we don't take that lightly, Father. And we acknowledge the fact that for those who have grown up uh, with that as a part of their frame of reference, that there is still that moment necessary for each one of us to choose that, to express, as Romans 5 said, our faith and confidence that indeed that the work of Jesus is sufficient and to allow you to be our forgiver and our leader. And so, God, uh, I pray for uh, any person in this room today that has never taken that step and who desires to do that. Jesus, we pray that you would stir faith up in their hearts today and it would be faith that saves. If that's you today, I want you to talk about that with somebody, one of the prayer team, just before you leave here today. They'd love to pray with you. And God, for each one of us uh, who at all kinds of different levels 
observes or has experienced wrong. Father, we pray that you would gift us yet again today with the capacity by your Spirit to overcome evil with good. We can't do it on our own. We need you to win the day in our families, in our own lives, in our world today, Father. We cry out for peace. And we invite you to just stir our hearts, God, if there are places uh, that we need to be intentionally praying for or acting in some way to see peace come. If there's relationships that are broken that you need us to attend to and mend in some way, God, we say we are willing to do that here in this place today. We ask that you would gift us your peace, Father, that passes all understanding and that it would guard and keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.